We are going to be in Exodus 34 this morning. And as you're turning there, I wonder what you think of when you think of the term front page news. The world of news media has a long-standing practice of highlighting its most important content by placing it front and center. Back in the days when newspapers were actually a thing, it was literal front page news. Uh, no, newspapers are still a thing, but not so much where they would take the most important news of the day and put it on the front page to draw attention to it. And as the news world transitioned from newspapers to news websites, there were still front pages to those websites. And once again, the most important content, the most urgent content was highlighted on the front page of the website. Then we transitioned into the world of social media. And social media doesn't have pages, but the, the concept of pinned content came into play, where you can take what you consider to be the most important content that you have and pin it to the top of your page or the top of your profile so that it draws attention to it. Visitors can quickly and easily access it. Well, Sam Albury has referred to Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, where God reveals himself to Moses as God's pinned tweet. It was several years ago when Twitter was actually still relevant. And he called it that because this is a text, these verses, this revelation of God, these are verses that are quoted dozens, quoted or alluded to dozens of times in the Old Testament. If repetition highlights importance, then these verses may be the most important thing that God actually says about himself because they are repeated so often in the Bible. This formula in verses 6 to 7 teaches us in summary form pretty much everything we need to know about the God of the Bible. And so this morning, I want to consider God's pinned tweet, God's pinned post, as we look at these nine opening nine verses of Exodus 34, under four broad headings. The first of those is what I've called the law we need. The law we need. Look at me at verse 1. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now, if you were entirely unfamiliar with the story until now, you might wonder, what are these two tablets? Why did Moses break them? What's going on here? I trust that many of you are familiar with the story, but I don't want to assume that you are. So let me just bring you up to speed. Some 40 days prior to these events, God had called Moses to come up to him at Mount Sinai. And while Moses was up there, God revealed to him his law, and he gave him instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And then God gave to Moses two tablets of stone with the law written on them, two, two tablets, each with a copy of the Ten Commandments on them, two, two copies of the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone that God provided with the finger of God, Exodus 31 verse 18. These two copies of the law were tangible representations of God's covenant with his people. But while Moses was on the mountain, the people down at the foot of the mountain were getting very impatient. They were getting impatient because Moses was taking so long to come back. They didn't know how long he was going to be gone. And so when they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they demanded that Aaron build them a physical representation of these gods who had brought them, of, of the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Aaron agreed to do so and he constructed a golden calf for them in Exodus chapter 32. 
Moses is completely oblivious to this, but the Lord knew what was happening. And so the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 32 verse 17, go back down. And it's interesting the way that he phrases it. Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. These are not my people. These are your people, Moses. God told Moses that he intended to destroy the people and build a new nation through his descendants. But Moses interceded for the people and asked God not to do that. Well, Moses went down and when he arrived back at the camp and he sees the idolatrous worship of the people with his own eyes, he angrily throws the tablets on the ground, smashing them to pieces. Now, it wasn't an act of uncontrolled rage, like he just couldn't control himself. It was a, a physical representation, a symbolic representation of what they had done. He has God's commandments. He has God's covenant. You have broken it. And he throws the tablets down, smashing them to a thousand pieces on the ground. He then destroyed the idol and restored worship, but at the cost of some 3,000 lives. Well, the next day, Moses went back up the mountain to once again intercede for the people. Chapter 33 then records the people leaving Sinai, and Moses continued intercession with them, which brings us to the text before us. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now, some of the interpreters have made much of the fact that God provided the first two tablets, but yeah, he tells Moses to bring two tablets with them. Um, if there's any significance to the fact that Moses brought the tablets with him this time, that significance isn't revealed in the text itself. The point of this is not that Moses provided the tablets. The point is that, of this is that God was willing to continue being in a covenant relationship with his people. God was not done with Israel. He was prepared to pick up the broken pieces of the covenant and continue in covenant relationship with his people. The instruction for Moses to cut these two new tablets of stone was a sign of hope. And so he goes with these two tablets of stone to have the Ten Commandments, the stipulations of the covenant written on them. It was necessary for God's people being in covenant relationship with him to have this written law. They needed the stipulations of the covenant. And interestingly, the stipulations were the same as those made earlier. God didn't alter his law because the people had failed. He didn't say, okay, well, sure, maybe that was a little bit too harsh. Let me, let me lessen it a little bit. The same Ten Commandments that were written on the first copies would be written on the second tablets. If the people were going to renew their covenant with God, they still needed to live by his law. They needed to worship him exclusively and as he commanded. They needed to honor his holy name and his holy day. They needed to respect authority. They needed to honor life. They needed to practice sexual purity. They needed to respect private property. They needed to speak with integrity. They needed to be satisfied with what God had given to them. The same things applied. Now, by the way, let me just say this as an aside. It's interesting that God says in verse 1 that, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. But if you just skip down to verses 27 and 28, we won't go all the way there today. But it's interesting, the Lord said to Moses in verse 27, write these words, you write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets, he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is for free, but... That's the way inspiration works in Scripture, by the way. Did Moses write the Ten Commandments on these tablets of stone? Yes. Did God write them? Yes. 
That's the way inspiration works. God uses human authors to write what he wants them to write. That's not the main point here, but that is how inspiration works. The primary point here is that God's people needed his word if they were going to live in covenant with him. God's law, as contained in the scriptures, were not an optional extra for them. And let me say, God's word, as they are contained in the fullness of scripture, are not an optional extra for us. If we are going to live in covenant with God, we need God's word. If we will be equipped for every good work, it will only happen through God's word. Paul tells us that all scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is, well, John didn't have Revelation, Paul didn't have Revelation when he wrote that, but today we have Revelation. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We borrow from what Warren Wiersbe quite famously said, the Bible shows us what is right, teaching. It shows us what is wrong, reproof. It shows us how to get right, correction. And it tells us how to stay right, training in righteousness. We need God's law if we will live faithfully before him, just as God's people needed his law, yeah. The second thing we see here is not only the law that they needed, not only the law we need, but we see, secondly, the mediator we need. The mediator we need. Look at verse 2. God speaking to Moses, Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. We see uh, something about the mediator that Israel needed, and are thereby reminded of the mediator that we need. Now, when God first gave the law, God first called Moses to come up so that he could give the law. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, verses chapter 19 and 20, God clearly told the people that they were not allowed to come, that they were not allowed to touch the mountain. Anyone who touched the mountain, whether, whether man or animal, whether, whether human or animal, anyone who touched it would die. Only Moses was permitted to approach God, and he would do so on behalf of his people. And while it's not explicitly stated in this text, the implication is that the warning was the same. Anyone who touches the mountain while Moses is up there will die. So you steer clear of the mountain. I am dealing with Moses on your behalf. The penalty for approaching God without a mediator was straightforward. It was death. And that penalty, by the way, remains today. What does the Bible tell us? Is the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5 verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The Bible tells us that on that day when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, those who stand before him without a mediator will receive the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. God's law is holy. God is utterly holy. And therefore, his law demands utter holiness. God will not allow sin to go unpunished, which puts us in a pretty precarious position, doesn't it? Why? 1 Kings 8 verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. Every one of us sins. And if the, 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 the wages that we earn for our sin is death, that puts us in a pretty serious position. 
How then can we possibly approach God? Well, Israel needed a mediator. They needed someone to go to God on their behalf, and we likewise need a mediator. Moses went to God on Israel's behalf. But the mediator that the people needed in this moment is not the mediator that we need today. They needed Moses, but Moses isn't a sufficient mediator for us today. If we will have hope of eternal fellowship with God, we need a mediator who is better than Moses. A mediator who, unlike Moses, was not a sinner. And of course, God has provided that mediator in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truly God. And he truly became a man to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die a sacrificial death on our behalf, to rise a victorious resurrection on our behalf. And as we will commemorate in just a few weeks' time, 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he took his throne at the right hand of his father. And Hebrews 7 verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for us. Moses made intercession here. Moses mediated here. But Moses died. Moses is no longer alive to make intercession to God on behalf of his people. But Jesus Christ who died rose from the dead and he is always alive. He lives evermore so that he can make intercession for us. Moses was sufficient in this moment. He is not sufficient for us today. In our sin, we face certain and eternal death. But in Jesus Christ, as our mediator, we may embrace the hope of eternal life. If we will but confess our sin and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can be confident that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So we see the mediator we need. Thirdly, this morning in verses 5 to 7, we see the God we need. The God we need. Look with me in verse 5. Moses has now ascended the mountain. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God reveals himself here by that covenant name, the Lord, in your Bible. It's, it's all capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's an indication that the, the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. This is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. It was God's covenant name which reminded Israel of the covenant that he had established with them. The name bears witness, as you see in Exodus chapter 3, to God's self-existence and God's self-sufficiency. Who is God? He is who he is. I am who I am. God is not who we want him to be. God is not who we imagine him to be. God doesn't change who he is in response to the way that we respond to him. He is who he is, and those who come to him must come to him as he is. So who is God? Who does God reveal himself to be? Well, in what follows, God reveals seven characteristics here that highlight his graciousness. And then he reminds the people that he is also a holy, sin-punishing God. 
Now, it may be worth noting that there's a particular structure to this revelation of God's character. We have that next slide up there that's got the... If you look there, there's people, uh, scholars call this a, um, a chiasm. And you see the, the structure that is highlighted there, that there's, there's pairs of almost repeating themes that, that are on opposite ends. So at the top there, A, God is merciful and gracious. And so at the bottom, he is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is B, slow to anger, which means he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And in the middle there, in green, C, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In a chiasm, the themes repeat themselves in reverse order. And whatever is in the middle, that is the emphasis. That is the major theme that we're driving at. John Piper, I believe it was, said that you can, you can think of this like a volcano. We've got a volcano up there. That wasn't my drawing, okay? We have a volcano there, and you can picture it as, as at the bottom, on either side of the volcano, at the foot there, there is, he is merciful and gracious so that he forgives iniquity and transgression. And halfway up, he is slow to anger, and he keeps steadfast love for thousands. But the, the erupting truth from all of this is that he is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because he is a God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, he is all those other things. Thanks, you can take that off. The central erupting thesis is that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because of that, he is merciful and gracious, and he forgives iniquity and transgression, and he is slow to anger, and he keeps steadfast love to thousands. So let's consider this, what God says about himself. Who is God? First of all, God is merciful. Merciful is a word that speaks of compassion or sympathy. It's a word that shows that God's heart is for his people. God is not reluctantly on your side. It's not as if God really wants to punish his people, but ah, oh, Jesus got in the way and I have to be on their side. God's heart yearns for his people. As a father shows compassion to his child, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103 verse 13. God is merciful. God is gracious. This is a word that speaks of undeserved favor. Despite what some people say, no one wants what they deserve from God. You do not want what you deserve from God. We should be deeply grateful that God does not give us what he deserves, but that in his grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. In his grace and through the Lord Jesus Christ, God makes it possible for us to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Again, the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is grace. And grace is deeply necessary because none of us can earn God's favor by our own merit. We need God to be gracious if we will have any hope of forgiveness and eternal life. God is slow to anger, the text says. This isn't to say that God never gets angry because certainly as you read Scripture, there are times when God gets angry but we are told here that he is slow to anger. He doesn't fly off the handle with uncontrolled rage. When he does get angry, it is controlled because it is righteous anger. A commentator by the name of John Mackey writes, Slow to anger does not, rep, does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who eventually loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges that the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation, even when it is in rebellion against him. 
He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. But he is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. God's slowness to anger, God's patience has a very particular purpose. Doug is going to be on sabbatical later this year. Um, and for about six weeks, the elders are going to be taking a, a very brief journey through Second Peter. Second Peter tells us the reason for God's slowness to anger. Tells us the reason for God's patience. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the lawyer is not slow to fulfill his promise. In other words, don't, don't think that because God's anger, God's promises or judgments are coming to pass, don't think that God is just unnecessarily delaying them as if he's not going to, to act. God is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness. But what? He is patient towards you. And why is he patient towards you? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what God wants. God is patient with us. God is slow to anger because he wants us to come to repentance. He will judge, but at his heart, he wants to exercise patience. He wants to give us opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. Isaiah 28 verse 21 describes judgment as God's strange deed, as God's alien work. Not something that he, he loves to do, although he will do it. So deep is his heart for forgiveness that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God does not delight in punish sinners. He delights in greatly forgiving them through Jesus Christ. God, the text tells us, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is a word that refers specifically to his covenant commitment to his people. Faithfulness carries the idea with it of truthfulness, that God tells the truth. In other words, God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness is secured by the fact that he always tells the truth. That if God makes a promise, he keeps it. When he enters into covenant with someone, he will follow through because he is a God of truth. This, by the way, is the theological principle that, that under undergirds the reformed teaching of the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because when God makes a promise, he will keep it. And when God saves someone, he enters into a covenant with them that I will make you like Jesus Christ. And God will keep that promise. There is no one in, with whom God enters into a covenant relationship who will fall away from him because God is a God of truth. God, it says, keeps steadfast love for thousands. If you have an ESV, the footnote in your ESV will say, as an alternate translation to the, to the thousandth generation. Steadfast love again, once, once again, chesed. And the point here is that God's steadfast love endures. God's covenant love is not so narrow that only a few benefit from it. God's covenant love spreads far and wide and is for thousands of generations. His love endures. God, we are told, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The word translated forgiving literally means to lift or to carry. The idea is that God himself carries our iniquity and transgression and sin. 
And I trust once again you see how that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who literally carried our transgressions to the cross. Jesus carried our sins to the cross and died in our place so that we could experience God's forgiveness. To underscore just how forgiving God is, he speaks of his willingness to forgive iniquity and sin and transgression. Three words that, that, <coughs> that all speak of sin, but they emphasize different aspects of sin. Iniquity means to turn aside from what is right and good. Transgression describes a willful violation of the terms of a covenant. That you're, you're openly rebelling against the God who makes this covenant. Sin is a general term that refers to any moral failure. The point seems to be that God is prepared and willing to forgive any type of sin. Why? Because Christ carried all and every kind of sin to the cross when he became sin for us. There is no category of sin that is beyond God's gracious forgiveness. So this is the kind of God that Israel needed. Israel needed a compassionate, gracious, patient, forgiving God. And this is the same God that we need today. We need a God who will hear our cry of distress, who will treat us better than we deserve, who will be patient with our grumbling and our complaining. We need a God who will forgive our sin. And the God of the Bible is just such a God. Again, as we've said time and again, these attributes of God are most clearly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one through whom God pours his compassion, grace, patience, and forgiveness on his humble, repentant servants. But that's not all that God reveals about, about himself here. Because while God is slow to anger, and while he is willing to forgive every kind of sin, willing to forgive every kind of sin. He is not willing to overlook sin. And yes, there's a difference between forgiving sin and overlooking sin. The text tells us here in verse 7, that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, people love to hear about this God who is graciously compassionate and faithfully loving and patiently forgiving. They don't like to hear about the God who is determined to punish sin. But if we ignore God's revelation about his justice, we have constructed an idol as sure as Israel constructed an idol while Moses was on top of the mountain. The God of the Bible is a God of justice who must and will punish sin. He longs to forgive, but he will punish sin. God, it says, will not clear the guilty. That is, he will not sweep unconfessed sin under the rug. Because he is holy, he must deal decisively with sin. And according to this text, he is committed to visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's probably a hint here that God deals with families. You know, and in, in the way that we are used to living today, we think of succeeding generations as, or, or third, third and fourth generations as succeeding generations, those that will come after us. In our context, a family is a husband and wife and, what's it now, 2.4 children? But in Old Testament times, families generally lived together in much larger units. 
Today, we find it impossible to think that we will be living with our parents in our adult years. And certainly when we get married and we have kids, we must have a home of our own. and Our parents must be in their own place. That's not the way that they did things in Old Testament times. In Old Testament times, three or four generations lived together in, as a family unit in the same place. Households easily included three or four generations, with the oldest typically considered to be the family patriarch. In an Old Testament context, therefore, when we think of God bringing discipline on, on three, three or four generations, it could be the same family unit, unit much like God did with, with the sin of Korah when God judged the entire family unit for that, or the sin of Achan in, in uh, Joshua chapter 7 when God brought judgment upon that entire family. But there may be another principle at play here. It may be that God visits the iniquity on succeeding generations by allowing sinful tendencies, if left undressed, to be passed on to those subsequent generations. You see, children learn from their parents. And they learn from the good things we do, and they learn from the bad things we do. If we don't, humble, if we don't model humble obedience, our children are not going to learn humble obedience. If our children hear us gossiping and backbiting, what are they going to learn to do? To gossip and backbite. If our children see us bitterly withholding forgiveness against those who have wronged us, they're going to learn to bitterly withhold forgiveness against those who have wronged them. If our children see us idolizing material possessions, they're going to grow up idolizing material possessions. And in that way, apart from the grace of God, our sin may, be well, may well be visited on subsequent generations. But the primary idea here is that God is a God of justice. Yes, God is a God of grace, but he is also a God of justice. There are certain segments of progressive Christianity today that promote the idea of a, a God of what we, call, we might call a God of unjust love. That God is just loving. He's not interested in justice. He just, wants to, he just wants to love everyone. And everyone must come to him and experience his love all the time. There's no, no thought of justice. But the God of the Bible is a God of holy, just love. Indeed, God's love is most clearly displayed against the backdrop of his holiness. C.S. Lewis writes, Mercy, detached from justice, grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox. As there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. You see, because what does it mean that God is loving and gracious and merciful if I deserve love and grace and mercy? It means nothing then. It only means something if I don't deserve those things. Love, grace, mercy only become meaningful when we realize that we don't deserve them, but that God freely lavishes them undeservingly on us. But the question here then becomes, how do we square this revelation of God's free grace with the revelation, just the next verse, that he will by no means clear the guilty? After all, aren't we all guilty before God? So if I'm guilty before God, is there no hope? Because God will not clear the guilty. Ah, but that's where Jesus Christ comes into the scene. Because Jesus became sin for us. He went to the cross in our place and our guilt was poured out on him so that we are no longer guilty. You see, in Christ, God doesn't overlook sin. God punishes sin 
in Jesus Christ. Jesus died as a substitute for those who would believe in him. At the cross, he was willingly punished for our sin so that his righteousness could be given to us. In theological terms, we call this imputation. That God took our sin and he put it on Jesus Christ. And he took Jesus Christ's righteousness and he put it on those who believe in him. So that when we stand before God, we do not stand before God guilty. We stand before God righteous in Jesus Christ. But if we reject Christ, then one day we will stand before God in all of our guilt. And we will face the full wrath against our sin. Jesus died and rose to deliver us from that wrath. And our only hope of standing before God guiltless is to receive Christ's offer of forgiveness through the cross. Now finally this morning, we see in verses 8 to 9 what I've called the response we need. The response we need. Look at me at verse 8. God appears to Moses. He graciously reveals to Moses who he is. And how does Moses respond? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. How did Moses respond to God's self-revelation? He worshipped. Worship is the only appropriate response to the revelation of God's gracious, merciful, patient, forgiving character. To worship means to bow. It's an act of submission. In worship, Moses acknowledged the people's sin. And he pleaded for forgiveness. And he begged God to receive this nation once again as his own. He knew that this was the only way that they could possibly be God's people to receive forgiveness. It was the only way that they could escape God's righteous judgment was to receive forgiveness. And we need the same response. Moses acknowledged that he and the people he led were a stiff-necked people filled with iniquity and sin. We need to recognize the same. Sin is rebellion against God's law. Either by doing or thinking or saying what God says you may not do, think or say. Or by not doing, thinking, or saying what God says, you must do, think, or say. We sin by transgressing God's law and by failing to obey God's law. And that sin renders us guilty before God, before a God who will by no means clear the guilty. We face the penalty of eternal death because we have sinned against a holy God. We must recognize that. We must acknowledge that. We must confess that. But confessing that, Moses prayed that God would forgive, would pardon our iniquity and our sin. And indeed, our only hope in the face of our guilt is pardon from Almighty God. And that pardon is and always has been exercised in the Lord Jesus Christ. People say, how How were people in the Old Testament who, who had never heard of Christ? How were they saved? Well, you see, back in the garden when when Adam and Eve first sinned, God gave a promise. And God said that one day, the offspring of the woman, he's going to come and he's going to deal with sin. He's going to take care of sin. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. And ever since then, people who wanted to stand righteous before God, people who wanted to believe in God, looked back to that promise and said, I trust in the one who will come to deal with sin. That's where my hope is found. 
It's not found in me. It's not found in these animal sacrifices. I am trusting in that one who God promised will come and will crush the head of the serpent. And we are saved today the same way. We're just saved by looking back to the one whom God did send to crush the head of the serpent. Moses prayed that God would take the people for his inheritance. Those who have been pardoned of sin have become God's eternal inheritance. We have a sure eternal hope because of our pardon. God's people are his unique possession. It's interesting if you study the word inheritance or related words in the Bible, particularly as they're used between God and, God and his people. In the Old Testament, predominantly, the idea of inheritance is God inheriting his people. For example, Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Or again, Deuteronomy 9 verse 29, they are your people and your heritage, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So we know, as, as, as Anton read this morning, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but God's people are his special inheritance. We have a relationship with God in a way that the rest of the earth does not. He cares for his people in a way that is unique. In the New Testament, on the other hand, the overriding idea of inheritance is what God's people inherit in him, that we inherit God. He is our inheritance. God belongs to his people in a way that he does not belong to those who are not his people. And these two uses of inheritance are brought together in some places in Scripture. So, for example, Jeremiah 10 verse 16, listen to what this says. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. God is Jacob's inheritance. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. So God is Israel's inheritance, and Israel is God's inheritance. There is this relationship that we enter to God. God is the portion of Jacob, even as Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Those who are pardoned belong to God, and he to him in a special way. See, when we receive forgiveness of our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become his people, and he becomes our God in a way that is not true of unbelievers. We enter into a unique and precious relationship with him, a relationship made possible only in and through Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, right here, Ezekiel, oh, Ezekiel Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, here's God's pin post. Yes, in some ways, the most important thing that God reveals about himself, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let me ask you, will you today recognize that there is a law you need, that there is a mediator you need, that there is a God you need, and that these needs are all met in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you therefore respond as you need to, receiving pardon, in, receiving pardon in Christ and entering into a special, unique relationship with him? And will you then commit to living as is in his inheritance? walking in obedience to him as he promises to be to you a graciously compassionate, faithfully loving, patiently forgiving God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for these truths. And we pray that throughout this week you will take these truths, this revelation of who you are, and persuade us in our hearts of hearts this, that this is who you are, and enable us to therefore respond to you in a way that is appropriate.